This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So let's set the Business Week agenda. So much going on. Gina Martin-Adams is with us, Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence in our interactive broker studio, along with Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor here at Bloomberg News. Gina, I do want to start with you. I was just watching, listening to you on television. I mean, calling a floor right now, is that impossible? Uh, yeah, I think it's next to impossible. We just can't find our technical supports. I will say this. As weak as it's been, we were so far above our long-term secular bull trend line that we haven't even gone back to test that secular bull trend line yet. So I do think that the market is sort of increasingly zeroing in on that secular bull trend line and probably going to test it. That's at 2480 on the S&P 500. So as much so as we to sort the of, downside, the yeah, test. So a little bit more to the downside to even test the secular bull market. You know, we talk about this 20% number as arbitrarily we're now in a bear market. Well, Maybe on a short-term basis, we have meant, we entered a cyclical bear, but that How secular bull that? trend is pretty important. That is, right? That will determine maybe where we go from... Yeah, I think so. It, you know, you take out the secular bull trend, you take out a lot of confidence. We've obviously had a ton of confidence removed from the market. There's evident fear out there right now. And you can see just by sort of the arbitrary sell everything, sell value most, but still sell everything, that people are just dumping exposures to assets at right. large. Um, so it creates this really difficult to predict kind of environment and that and any technical supports that you try to identify are just meaningless. You know, they just get broken time after time after time. So this is absolutely a, a black swan event, which effectively makes it incredibly unpredictable. It also makes it that much more scary for investors who are tr thinking, trying to think long term, think 2021, right. 2022, trying to embed valuations. It How makes it just that? really difficult to well, do. Well, especially because companies have essentially said, we don't know. Right. So Dave Wilson, come on in here because as we were getting ready for the show, I was looking at the S&P and its moves today. Carol and I were trying to understand it. And lucky for me, I said, I got a guy who, who can help me understand this. What did you see? Well, I mean, it was really pretty much straight down from the opening bell. And what jumped out at me is that uh, when the circuit breaker kicked in, like five minutes after trading began, a quarter of the stocks in the S&P 500 has not even begun trading wow. on the New York Stock Exchange, which means you had no prices figured into that 7% drop in the index. So once that 15-minute period passed and trading resumed, well, you had all those additional shares kick in. And so you ended up uh, at what was then the lows of the day. I mean, you, you later saw- That means saw what? There's no buyers. I mean, there's no there's trading. no market. Basically, the people responsible yeah. on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange for deciding what the price of the stock needed to be, they couldn't figure it out because people were rushing to sell. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Now, you know, we, we had the sort of momentary, as it turned out to be, rebound, uh, you know, just about an hour ago. What when was the that Federal, rebound? When the was Federal the Reserve, yeah. yeah, when they came out and said they were basically going to flood the financial system for the moment. Uh, and then most of those gains have since sort of shriveled away. You guys have both seen a lot of market cycles, certainly through the financial crisis and elsewhere, where we've had shocks to the market. I do wonder, Gina, when you look at this, what do we need either from policymakers, from market watchers, from the corporate community? What do we need from the healthcare community uh, and science community? What do we need to shore up this market? Is yeah. it just a lack of confidence? 
Well, I think I think it is a lack of confidence. I think we need more visibility, which I, you know is almost an impossible ask right now. But the fact that companies are coming out and pulling guidance and not providing any sort of greater intelligence is certainly not helping matters. So, you know, recall a few weeks ago when Apple what will came give out, them for confidence? instance. What, like, where um, do I think we get they, that? They need to get a better handle on where things are headed. Right? It's very clear. For instance, activity in China is already starting to pick up. And we're kind of ignoring that, right? I would like to get a little bit more visibility into how much that is picking up, how fast it is rebounding, where is it picking up? And we don't always trust their up. data, which is making yeah, it tricky. Yeah, and that's creating a lot of confusion. At the same time, the pressures are obviously strengthening on the U.S. and Europe. So we need that bright spot and we need to talk about it. Where is that headed? While you guide down for the U.S. and Europe, that's fine. But are you actually seeing recovery there to kind of right. back up what the Chinese have suggested? That would help a lot. And then it's very clear, just based upon the sequence of market activity over the course of the last two weeks, that the market is begging fiscal policymakers to do something. And we really have gotten nothing. Right. Um, and that was the big hope going right? into last and night, right? I think right? that's what exactly what happened this morning is there was a lot of embedded hope that we were going to get some sort of big bazooka, bazooka program right. from the fiscal bodies that we the president the and Congress last could come together maybe mm-hmm. and sort of find some commonality to address this crisis and we're not getting it. And the market's increasingly frustrated by that. Even Christine Lagarde said it this morning. Yeah. Fiscal policy needs to happen because that's the only policy that can actually, in this kind of moment, really have an impact on the economy. But in a coordinated way, which obviously not much is coordinated uh, in the world right now. Final thought to you, uh, Dave Wilson, what do you look for uh, in these last two hours of trading? You know, we'll just see if uh, the market can hold where it is and whether we end up toward our lows of the day, Mm -hmm. which would mean, you know, that 2480 you're talking about, Gina, looms ever larger. All right. Dave Wilson, thank you so much. You'll be back a little later on with your chart and stock of the day. Uh, Always grateful to you, as well as to Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Really appreciate the insights as well. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. President Trump says he does not support House Democrats' package of measures to respond to the coronavirus in its current form. This, even as his Treasury Secretary is negotiating changes with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Let's get the latest from Washington. Josh Wingrove is at the White House. He is our White House correspondent here at Bloomberg News. Hey, Josh, I want to start with, uh, you know, the president spoke, of course, as we all know, last night. What's the mood at the White House? What can you feel in terms of what's going on uh, and their assessment of the situation and their ability to control it? Well, he is kind of slowly backing off a little bit of the sunnier tone that he's been using for weeks. I mean, he said a couple of things today, for instance, and we were in the Oval Office and he was saying, this will pass. We're going to turn a corner. It's only a matter of time. Markets will come back uh, eventually. Uh, but he also acknowledged that he was just hosting the Irish Prime Minister. They had to scrap part of that visit and that they didn't shake hands because of this. And of course, we're also seeing today that Trump uh, made con- contact or was photographed with a Brazilian official since tested positive for the virus. So his ability to kind of ride this out and just sort of, you know, say that it won't be all that bad, it's it's closing in on him a little bit rhetorically. And of course, we're seeing markets react to uh, that speech last night and not like what they hear. Let's talk about that speech. What are you hearing from your folks that, uh, you know, your sources inside the White House? Because I do think all of us around here were expecting some very big moment. It was his first speech, from what I understand, right from the Oval Office. We were expecting some big programs that were going to kind of 
kind of stem the fear that is out there among citizens and certainly among investors. And we yeah, didn't get that. Right. And they, the, the big headline event was that ban on certain travelers coming to the U.S. from Europe. That was not something we'd seen floated at all. And other things that had been floated, things around deferring payroll taxes in whole or in part, you know, uh, that, that sort of ballpark was not announced. So, you know, he kind of just pulled a surprise one out of his hat uh, and one that does most health officials seem to think won't really make much of a difference. We already have these cases coming up in the U.S. Stopping people coming from planes is not uh, where, where we should be focusing uh, energy, uh, energy and attention in this in this case. So I think the big question now really does turn to what will Trump do additionally, and what will Congress do? And that you know brings us to this bill. The Democrats dropped the text of their bill late last night. The White House reaction was sort of mixed. Immediately saying we're not going to accept it as is. They're objecting to what Trump called goodies in this bill, but it does seem like the wheels are moving and the Congress will do something. The Senate has said that they'll come back next week rather than taking a break as scheduled. And I think that's a sign that they see some sort of path for a, a compromise between the Democrat-held House and the Republican-held Senate on this bill. And Mnuchin, Secretary of the Treasury, Stephen Mnuchin, really at the heart of this from an administration perspective. And there is some hope, right, Josh, that his ability to negotiate with Nancy Pelosi successfully in the past may portend a deal or might being overly optimistic. Yeah, I mean, uh, like, look, <laughs> we get the administration swatting down uh, House bills all the time. Uh, for instance, on drug pricing, just saying, listen, it's a non-starter. And we're, we're not having that now. You yeah. know, they are, they are in talks, as you say, Mnuchin is in there. So you know, I wouldn't write off at all some kind of deal being done. Now, the details of what that includes are very much up in the air. But we had also today Dr. Fauci, who's been sort of the, mm -hmm. one of the top uh, career officials leading this response, admit and say, look, the U.S. system is just not built the way that other countries are. It's harder for us to get testing out the door. He's saying it's, it was a failure so far and the ability to scale up widespread testing. And so I think one thing hanging over this is we really don't yet have a snapshot of what the U.S. cases are right now. And without knowing that, it's really hard to know sort of what where on the curve we're at, how high this curve is going to be. Well, it's interesting. Vanity Fair is just pulling up a story uh, before we got going, uh, and it's about, it's entitled Trump's top coronavirus expert, the president, you know, doesn't really know what he's talking about. And according to Dr. Anthony Fauci, nearly everything the president has said about the virus is wrong. I mean, we are at this interesting time where having factual information about the virus, how to deal with it, and what needs to be done to stop it. I mean, look at China. They did a lockdown. They did a quarantine. And is that the model? So you do wonder, um, is anything going to get a better? get better? I mean, I do wonder about kind of the adult in the room when it comes to the White House. Well, I... I mean, I think the, the th thing that will register with a lot of Americans yesterday was less Trump's speech than the fact that the NBA, you know, scrapped or at least suspended its season. The NHL took a similar step today. Uh, you know, Tom Hanks says about that stuff is going to break through in a way uh, that really puts it on people's radar, um, and maybe people will take it seriously. Just to back up, as you mentioned, the advice is, you know, treat it more severely than the flu, but similar to the flu. Wash your hands. Don't shake hands. Avoid contact, you know, with, uh, with with public surfaces if you can, that kind of thing. Like, that's the sort of basic 101 steps. Uh, and then, you know, get in co contact with your doctor. If you think you're having symptoms, they've cited some of the symptoms that are most common. Fever is a big one on that. Uh, but as I say, there's been complaints that the testing regime just is not in place. And, and all the things the administration has done to date to try to ramp that up to where they want 
want it to be, which is, you know, the tens of millions of tests available just in case, aren't there. We have about a million tests and about four million on the way, but it just is not at what? the scale that other countries are having. Why is it taking so long? Uh, I mean, it, it really depends on, on who you ask. It's a patchwork system. They're having private labs do some of it. CDC is trying to do some of it. Uh, other countries went off a global standard, whereas the U.S. sort of went its own way a bit. Uh, uh, you know, and the U.S. has sort of a fragmented health system, of course, with a mix of public, private, Medicaid, state by state, et cetera. Right. Um, so there, there, there's, a, there's a mixed bag here that, that, that's contributing to, uh, I think, a slower ramp up than other countries that, you know, for instance, have, have a national health care system or that kind of thing. All right, Josh Wingrove, thank you so much. White House correspondent for Bloomberg joining us on the phone uh, from the White House. A good update and some good context. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. The leading U.S. infectious disease official today saying that the testing system in this country is failing. The coronavirus threatening to exceed healthcare capacity across the European Union. That's what we're hearing from there. And the U.K. expecting, check this out, the peak of the virus outbreak in 10 to 14 weeks. Lauren Sawyer is Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, joining us on the phone from Baltimore. Baltimore. We do want to point out Mike Bloomberg supports the Bloomberg School of Public Health. And Mike Bloomberg, of course, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Uh, Lauren, nice to have you here with us. Um, You see the headlines. You see what's happening. You hear what policy folks are trying to do, healthcare officials are trying to do. And what does it say to you? I think it says we still have a major testing gap, and I see the ramp up of uh, adding testing sites, adding places with lab-developed tests, adding all of these additional options, but I worry that it's a little too late, and I worry that we don't have the backup of the materials we need in order to really implement this push-forward with testing strategy, because we're going to start looking, and then we're going to start finding cases. So, Professor Sauer, help us understand you were on Capitol Hill uh, last week, I believe, talking to lawmakers. Take us inside the room. What were you saying to them? And, and maybe more importantly, uh, what were they asking you and what did you learn from that interaction? Yeah, testing was a very big um, sort of focus area on the questions that they had for us about its importance and how we scale it up and what that means when we start to do increased testing. There was a lot of questions on understanding really how the virus interacts with us as humans and what, you know, how how we get sick, how we get better, um, how we spread the virus. So um, I think what I saw in that room is a a real need to scale our ability to do science in this outbreak and and better understand what's happening um, and put evidence to what's happening. And I just want to, you know, point out for our listeners and viewers on YouTube, uh, Professor Sauer, you are part of this team at John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins. You guys have been on the ground for Hurricane Katrina, the 2009 California wildfires, the Haiti earthquake, uh, the Pakistan floods, uh, and more recently, the Ebola virus outbreak, a disease outbreak uh, in West Africa. So you have seen a lot of these situations. Um, I understand that there's conversations and we all have to have an understanding, but I do feel like the clock is ticking and the longer we take to kind of taking the right steps, the bigger this problem becomes on individuals, most importantly, and then, of course, on our broader economic world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's the scale of this is unprecedented, and we really need to focus on um, increasing the capacity of our response capabilities and increasing the ability of our providers and our responders to take care of themselves. I think it's a huge piece. 
And so, Professor Sauer, help us understand, and I know we ask this question of everyone. I know you've been asked it a million times, but it feels like it bears repeating as much as we can. What should individuals be doing in terms of their day-to-day behavior? We know about washing hands, but we also are starting to hear more and more from governments about, uh, you know, less, uh, fewer activities where lots of people are gathered. Is it just that simple? I think it is that simple. You know, there's been a lot of this image of flattening the curve being shared on social media and in news reports. And I think it's a really important concept. Um, Social distancing works. We know that. Um, Good hand hygiene works. Basic infection prevention and control works. And that's why we as sort of a clinical um, network across the country, we really push this message of identify, isolate, and inform. And, and it's, a, it's a crucial strategy in this situation because we want to, testing is a big piece of it. We want to be able to identify these patients and the people who have it so that they can isolate or we can isolate them if they're sick um, and then inform everyone else who needs to know, either right. contacts or the healthcare system. Uh, we do want to point out the stock uh, market, stocks in general, approaching the lowest levels of the day. The S&P uh, alone, 500, dropping 8%. Hey, um, Professor Sauer, just got about 40 seconds here. Um, what what can policymakers do to help support us? I mean, it does sound like we just need more tests. Why aren't we getting them or what can we do? And just got about 30 seconds to quickly get more to yeah. the United States. So we do need more tests. Um, we need to really take care of our healthcare workers and our public health practitioners. We need to scale up the public health response to this. We need to do a better job of messaging that this is important, that the, the public pays attention to it, and that they avoid going to emergency departments if they don't need health care, um, and stay home and, and, and really take advantage of the, the option to social distance if you're given it, whether from your employer or your schools um, or anyone else. All right, we're going to leave it there. Lauren Sauer is Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and of course, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Mike Bloomberg, the owner of Bloomberg LP, the owner of this radio station. And in the end, the love you take. All right, well... It was a well-loved bull market. Uh, That is for sure. It went on for a long time, 11 years, almost 11 years to the day. Actually, not really loved. Yeah. Well, I mean, people love it. You love it now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah, exactly. You do love it now. Yeah. I think people would love to have the bull market back, Carol Masser. Uh, In any case, it is part of a massive takeover, an entire takeover of Business Week this week. Joel Weber is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's here with us. You heard the dulcet tones of his voice just a minute ago here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, along with Mike Regan. He wrote the story in this week's edition, The Most Unloved Bull Market Finally Comes to an End, but we're loving it now, at least in retrospect, Mike Regan. So uh, talk to us about what happened. Well, obviously, I mean, I guess it's fair to call this coronavirus just the, the black swan that, you know, no one could have predicted or, or really seen coming. Uh, and I think, you know, you have to step back and just realize uh, the position the market came into this event with, uh, you know, this ultra long economic expansion. I think it's the longest economic expansion in, in U.S. history, the longest bull market in U.S. history. And this uh, sort of 
feeling that the market was bulletproof, that it could handle anything thrown its way. I mean, and we saw that through the European debt crisis, the U.S. losing its AAA credit rating, the all the geopolitical flare-ups. It's been a lot it's, over the last decade. It, it really has. But, you know, th- that sort of led us into this, this sort of hyper-optimistic valuation coming into this, you know, 22 and change times trailing earnings. That That's a pretty high multiple coming into the year. Price to sales at 2.4 was the high, literally the highest ever uh, valuation for the S&P on that metric. So, um, and, you know, it, it was this idea that the trade war was over, that the data was all going to accelerate, and just this hyper sense of optimism to really just get hit with this this one-two punch of first the coronavirus, then the this oil price war going on uh, between Saudi Arabia and uh, uh, Russia. Um, so, it, you know, it's it's like the old Jimmy Cliff song, the harder they come, the harder they, they fall. And, and we really came into this with a, a full head of steam. Uh, so really kind of the... The worst, one of the worst possible moments to get hit with something right. uh, that's causing this much economic damage. What's the the mood that, I mean, obviously things are red and bad, but like, are there any other existential kind of things going on, on from what you can tell? Yeah, I mean, the, the sort of the dollar funding stress is really what is sort of front and center now. Um, and that's part of the reason why you see stuff like gold selling off and treasuries not being as bid as you would expect them to be on a day when the, the Dow's down 2,000 points. So that uh, the news from the New York Fed today that they were uh, doing this, man, I mean, a bazooka of a repo operation, $500 billion across you know the entirety of, of the Treasury curve. So no longer just buying the T-bills uh, to keep the, the short end down. Now, more or less what you would have to you know agree, I think everyone will agree, is a, is a quantitative easing measure. And so what that has done is I, I think it has alleviated some of the stress in the in the dollar funding markets. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly not enough to really reverse this tailspin in equities. It, it did it, we did see a bounce in, in stocks. I mean the, the S and P gained like six percent off of the lows after that announcement from the Fed. Came right back down though because the headlines keep piling up on the virus itself, which is you know, it's hard to imagine risk assets starting to perform well again until the virus itself, this underlying issue that we can't get away from is, is curtailed. And the, the numbers out of Italy were alarming. The press conference in the UK was alarming. Right. Um, so here we are. Right. The UK, I mean, Jason, and I have been talking about that. The UK saying that it expects the peak of the virus outbreak in 10 to 14 weeks. So we're starting to get right. some visibility, whether you like it or not. What's interesting is I think about um, Mike, the market playbook, right? We have had crises before. We've had energy shocks. We've had a financial crisis. But now you've got to add in that playbook of things that can really bring down the market a health crisis. Right. And uh, unprecedented, I would say, that we've you know ever, I mean, maybe you can go back to 1918 or whatever and, and make a comparison there. But people, I don't remember back then. <laughs> right, right, I, right. I feel like I remember. I know. I'm not that old. <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, but even, you know, obviously the market's so much different than then that there's no, there is no sort of past event to kind of yeah. anchor anchor all your studies on and anchor your expectations on. And the, the, what really I think is, is alarming to me about this is, you know, the financial crisis was terrible, obviously, but it was focused on that one sector, the big banking, uh, the big banks of the country, the, the insurers like AIG. So, you know, you knew where the fire was to put it out. Right. I feel like the fire now is is spread off of a much wider uh, swath of the economy from, you know, it looks like we'll probably have to bail out the airlines eventually. The, right. the hotel industry is suffering. I mean, look at what's just been announced today in New York. Uh, 
Mario, uh, uh, Governor Cuomo, uh, Andrew Cuomo, basically saying um, no gatherings of more than 500 people. So Broadway's been shut down. Uh, Metropolitan Museum's being St. shut Patty's down. St. Patty's Day Parade. St. Patty's. I mean, this stuff all adds up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, again, if you're in the government trying to fight this fire, it's surrounding you. It's all over. Right. It's not that you can point the, the hose at the bank's and and shoot a bunch of money their way. Now you have, I mean, it's all well, over the place. Having said that, do you think it was wrong that the White House brought the bank CEOs to the White House yesterday who all said it's not a financial crisis? <sighs> yeah, I, you know, they also were saying that in 2007. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, but thought- so this leads me to a thing that I think is really interesting, which is, you know, right now, in some ways, you would expect this would be what happens. It just, everything's going to go down, right? But, the weird thing is, like, until just probably yesterday and today, it didn't feel like it had reached this this kind of almost like, I don't want to use the word panic, but just something like along those lines. It was still like, okay, some bad stuff's happening and the market's reacting. Right. Yeah. But now is where things start to pile up to a point that maybe something breaks. Yeah. And when something breaks somewhere, then that's when things really might lead somewhere bad. Right. Nothing's right. broken yet. I, I, I mean, there's signs of, if not broken, definitely stress, stress and, and strains. And again, in that, that short-term dollar funding markets. Um, but in the credit markets are getting really kind of nasty. The, yeah. the spreads on high-yield bonds, uh, even the spreads on investment-grade bonds, they've all doubled at least in since this episode started at, at the end of February. So... That rate of change just seizes up the credit market. So, uh, you know, that I think will be sort of the focal point that the government and the Fed are going to have to wrap their heads around it. And and that'll be the first fire to fight. Um, it, let's be honest, the political situation in this country is not good. It's I mean, it's pure yep. dysfunction. Uh, you know, you saw the, the House Democrats came out with their plan last night, immediately rejected by Kevin McCarthy and the Democrats and then later Trump. Um, it's an election year. It's this is it's just not a good setup for for everything. But I do worry, worry about you know American companies and their credit situation that they're tapping credit lines already. With a market like this, you can't tap new money if you need it, right. and so that's when you start to see some severe dislocations. Uh, it's a must read. The whole magazine, Mike's story, and so much more. Joel Weber, editor of the magazine. Thank you so much, Mike Regan, who makes sense of the markets for us on a daily basis. Thank you so much. You're listening to Blue. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Jim Ellis is here with us. He is Assistant Managing Editor for Bloomberg Business Week. We got to catch up with him earlier this week to break down what's going on in the magazine and specifically the coverage in this special takeover issue around what businesses are doing. It's a terrific set of stories because it really sort of takes you through what's going on at various places around the world and it's not a straight-ahead story in a lot of ways, Jim. What did you guys find? What did you set out to do, first of all? Well, we first set out to, to figure out what's going through the um, uh, minds of people in the business world right now. And so we sort of divided that up, and we thought, okay, so how do I cope with this, you know, which is a different thing than, you know, so how do I cope with it? How are others coping? You know, what are the long-term impacts of this? And so then we tried to come up with a set of stories that looked at each one of those sort of areas. And it got deeper and deeper. And we were surprised at just how there wasn't one answer to any question. So therefore, we did the entire issue sort of divided up into questions. And we thought that would be an unusual way. But it's a way that sort of fits in this crazy world where we don't really know 
you know, what's up? Mm -hmm. And we certainly don't know what's the bottom right now. Certainly one of those questions has to do with, okay, what goes on with the auto industry, right? And you guys look into it, a specific story. I mean, this is an industry where cars are made with thousands of parts and they rely, we, you know, on a global supply chain. Yeah, we were really interested in trying to find some, you know, a, an auto company that was dealing with that. And so we lucked out in discovering that Peugeot, um, the European automaker was going through this sort, of, this sort of scramble to figure out how can they um, get enough parts to make sure that they don't have to cut their production down. Now, one of the problems for their industry is that China has become such an important place to providing auto parts, and particularly the middle part of China, which is where Wuhan is. And so as they went through and they discovered, my God, we have a huge number. We have 6,000 different companies that we supply you know, parts from, and a lot of the exposure there, they had about three, 400 companies within China that were giving them parts. And so they started to look around, how can we do, how can we backstop that? Right. You know, how can we identify other sources for different things? And if we can't find other immediate sources, how can we figure out ways to make those parts ourselves? And often that wasn't that easy to do. Often they found uh, in one case that the part that they wanted to not source from China they could source except from Milan. Yes, they were except, you know, you could source it in Italy, which wasn't a great thing given that Italy was about to shut down as well. So there's a lot of scramble that goes on here. And one of the things that they ended up doing was trying to sort of back up and look at where the machinery that was in those plants in places that were under quarantine or or was difficult to get stuff from, where did that machinery come from? And they backed out and discovered early prototypes of machinery or sometimes even the stamping, you know, sort of uh, um, equipment that used to make a machine and then they could try to make parts from that now. Now, they're not going to be able to make those kinds of parts at the volume and at the rate that you could in a Chinese factory, but at least you can keep some parts flowing to the line so you don't have to shut lines down. You know, in terms of the global supply chain, I thought this was an interesting fact uh, or point in that story about the auto industry and uh, Peugeot specifically that in the aftermath of Fukushima global chip makers talked about ending ending their reliance on Japan for chips but in the end not much change. Not so much changes. Maybe There's, you can't change you, it. You probably can't change it. Well you certainly can't change it quickly and what mm. we discovered with chips is that you know sometimes some countries have such a big advantage and in, 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 in either they have a lot of um, you know they have great transport transportation systems between themselves and the rest of the world that's a great that that's a big advantage for China but also they have uh, collections of expertise and suppliers who are geographically so centered that you want to deal with that area regardless I mean you know a lot of people are able to shift toward um, you know Thailand or right. shift toward Vietnam but you cannot yet duplicate just the the, 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 the large number of suppliers that you have in China all right, uh, shifting gears, one of the stories that we really enjoyed uh, and was eye-opening, uh, at least for me, especially on this day where public gatherings are being curtailed in New York, New Jersey, all across the country, you had a reporter go to a convention that was still on in Las Vegas. Yes, um, I, I, I thought... What happens if the show must go on? Yeah. And you know, we've, we've seen all these things about you know, meetings being canceled, but what happens if you have something that's so big or it's so close, you can't do it? So we discovered that Con Expo, which is the largest construction industry show, 
what's happening in Las Vegas this week. Now, ConExpo is unusual because it's not an annual show. It only happens every three years. It's that big. It takes over almost three million square feet. This is massive. It has it's the size of multiple football fields, and it has an outdoor component that puts up cranes and backhoes and every sort of uh, equipment out there. It is. You know, one of those undertakings that's, you know, truly years in the planning. And so we decided, let's go there and see, you know, how do you do business as usual when it's not usual? Right. What we discovered was that people were making all sorts of accommodations. Um, there's no more handshaking. There's a no handshaking rule there. There's the, the, the elbow bump. There's the shoulder shimmy. There's, um, I mean, everybody has their thing. And it's not just, you know, guys on the floor doing that. Right. We discovered that the uh, CEO of Caterpillar was doing his, his bump and yeah. that there was the shoulder shimmy for the guy at Bobcats. There was, I mean, everybody has a Everybody wave. had a Everybody thing. Everybody had a All right, Jim Ellis, thank you so much. Check this out in the magazine. It really gives you a sense of how companies yeah. are and aren't uh, doing business. Really appreciate Jim, as always, overseeing the business section at Bloomberg Business Week. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, and it is time for the drive to the close. I think a lot of people are going to be happy to see this market close today. Uh, it's a brutal one in the red, as you just heard Charlie break down. Let's turn to a true market expert, JJ Kinahan, chief market strategist for TD Ameritrade. $1.3 trillion in assets under management they are looking after. He joins us on the phone from Chicago. All right, JJ, I was reading some commentary that you made to our colleagues, I believe, Sunday night going into Monday. What a week it has been. How do you take stock of it at this point, uh, given everything that we've seen, and especially today? Well, as you said, uh, I think a lot of us will be anxious to see this uh, day be over. Uh, it's not only red, it's bright, bloody red, because uh, it's really been an ugly day. And I think that the volatility is going to continue. Um, the, the, the biggest issue in this market is compared to some other things that we've lived through, be it, you know, 87 or 9-11 or even last year with the tariffs, is those events uh, had sort of a, you know, at 9-11, a few days after, unfortunately, it happened, but at least it seemed like it was over so to speak. We right. can get on with our lives. You know, tariffs went on, but there were dates associated with things. There's no date associated with this. And when there's no date, that makes people very nervous. It's a huge unknown. Unknowns usually mean selling things. And so the biggest thing is you're trying to reassess the value of every stock in the market right now because you don't know how the quarterly earnings are going to be affected and earnings drive stocks. Everything's happening at the same time with no known date of when you can say, okay, this is over, so now that these companies can sort of get back to business. Yeah, I do wonder, as an investor, what 
what you want to hear from policymakers, lawmakers, from leaders. I mean, what's interesting is I think there was an assumption yesterday with all the bank CEOs there in the White House meeting with the president and his team that there would be some concrete policy coming out of it. What we did hear is that the bank CEOs at least, you know, telling the president this isn't a financial crisis. I get that. Yet we didn't necessarily get specific policies to maybe shore up various industries. What do you want to hear, JJ? Uh, What do your customers, your clients want to hear in terms of policies to kind of at least stem the fear and the selling off? Well, I I think, you know, most of the things you want to hear at this point, Carol, we can try all the business stimulus you you want. I think the biggest thing we could hear is actually from the medical community in that we have some way of mitigating this. Uh, Bar that, everything else we do will have some effect, but I still think that'll be the overlying. People want to hear there's some medical sort of solution. Uh, you, You know, again, I think the government just continuing to show stimulus as much as possible to show that they're on it from a medical end will be the best thing that can possibly happen. And, you know, the reason this is sort of different, and I, I always hate seeing, you know, this time's different, but I think this time is a little bit different because it's something that it's easy to personalize. You can understand, you know, the tariffs were very sort of a gray area. Mm-hmm. This is easy for every single person in the United States to personalize and say, if this happens to me, I know exactly what can happen, and that makes me really nervous not only for my family, but for what can happen to my business. Well, who is it that we talked to, Jason, yesterday, I, I believe it was, or, or earlier in the week, that just saying, you know, this is, you know, a fear situation, and folks are saying, you know, I can die from this, and this is what, how do you control that? And you're right, you need to hear from the medical community. Yeah, absolutely, and, and, and hopefully we'll start to hear more. I also think, you know, I'm coming on talking about the market. I think people have to be a little selective to, about what they hear also. When people ask me, I, I, I've had other people ask me medical questions. I'm like, I'm not a medical. My wife right. is. She's a doctor. She's pretty smart. So they're much smarter than I'll ever be. Talk to her. But, you know, when, when, when people come on who are business people and try and talk about medicine, you have to be a little bit careful also. Good Absolutely. Good so point. are there things that you're advising folks to do from an investment perspective? Uh, I'm not asking you for medical no, advice no, here, I, JJ. I, know, but I, didn't mean that. I didn't mean that towards you. So no, no, no. I'm, te- I'm teasing. I'm, I'm trying to make yeah. a, a just bring a little bit of levity to it. You're right. Um, you know, uh, but from a market perspective, what, what do you say to people who, who may be, you know, going to the mattresses here and saying, sell me out, I'm bunkering down because that may not be the best advice here? You know, and I think you bring up a great point, and that's usually the worst possible thing you can do. At least history shows us that. Uh, what I tell people is, listen, we always hear, oh, don't, let it, don't be emotional, blah, blah, blah. We're all emotional yeah. about money. If that wasn't the case, the number one sort of source of marital strife wouldn't be money. That all said, when it's your money, you take it very personally. What I would tell people is to think in partials. If you can't take it anymore, don't say I have to be all out. Sell a small percentage if mm-hmm. you feel you must sell something, and you can reassess. And I think the biggest difference that separates, or two things that separate professional and retail traders. Number one, having a time frame in mind, and number two, thinking in partials rather than all out and all in. And this is a time to really think in partials, whether you're buying because you see great opportunity or whether you're saying, I-, I have to sell because I can't stand the pressure. This is the absolute time more than any other to think that way. 
Yeah, I do think, you know, this is where if you didn't think about it before, what your tolerance is for risk, uh, mm -hmm. you're certainly getting a harsh lesson at this point. I do wonder, though, and I, I've been asking this to a bunch of our market guests, JJ, is how much of this sell-off would you attribute to just concerns about the virus, which are legitimate concerns? How much was, you know, safe to say the market was overvalued? We were looking for a reason to sell. Probably not this much, uh, but we were looking for better valuation. Two-thirds of the market uh, sell-off, would you account to the virus? How would you do it? How would you break it down? Yeah, I think that's, I think, Carol, you bring up an interesting point. I think this all started last week particularly. Yeah, a little bit of the fear of the virus, but more so, okay, we, we're maybe a little overextended in some people's eyes, so starting to sell that way. As we come into days like today, I think the, the, the script has flipped a little bit to be primarily about a sense of fear of what this actually means. Now, you know, you look at the bond market reaction today, and you're trying to figure out what's going on there, because remember, the bond market yeah. rallied long before stock market went down. Bond market not really responding to the upside today is, is a little bit strange. I mean, I know there's some obvious pressures with what the Fed announced earlier today, but there's still a disconnect, it seems. So we'll see which side is right. We know the stock market has a tendency to overshoot things to both the upside and the downside. Right. So hopefully there's something that we can hang our hat on on that as the week progresses. Well, and what I will say is right now we've got the bond market and the treasury market. I mean, the bond market, forgive me, and the equity market both selling off in tandem. I mean, we've got the 10-year now moving up to just about uh, – uh, just under 0.9%. Uh, we were much lower on that 10-year yield. So there is some dislocation uh, trying to understand uh, this trade. JJ, um, thank you so much. I know it's a hectic time. JJ Kinahan, Chief Market Strategist at TD Ameritrade, $1.3 in assets under management. Uh, JJ joining us on the phone from Chicago. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.